don't know if you've heard about the, uh, the guy from the city, big city news reporter, was interested in the flooding that was going on in the, in the county around him, in the small cities especially, is just kind of washed away. I mean, you'd see the pictures and stuff on the news. So he decides he wants to go down and get a firsthand news account. You know how they do to try to get in people's faces and see them crying and all that stuff. So, so he actually went to this small town. And as he got to the edge of the small town, the, the waters were already up at the city limit sign. So he finds a guy on a boat, and he actually hires this guy to take him around so he can get some firsthand look at the devastation and see if he can find some families who might still be there that he can interview. As they're going along, he sees there's a woman sitting up on top of a house, and the, the water, floodwaters cover about half of her house. She's sitting up on the roof of her house. And so he gets the guy to pull the boat over close to the edge of the roof, and he scampers up on there, and he walks, and he sits down with her, viewing the devastation all around as, as she's sitting there and watching the floodwaters just wash by her home. And as he's sitting there in silence, see his little doghouse kind of go washing down where the road was. Next thing is one of those little tykes, play sets, you know, those plastic things. It's kind of tumbling through the floodwaters down the street. Then there's something he couldn't quite figure out, whether it was a utility shed or an outhouse, but it's, it's floating down. Then he sees the top of a VW bug. It's going down. And he's just sitting there, and he's just watching this woman as she's watching all this stuff happen around her. And then he notices there's a hat that's floating along out in front of the house. But this is a little different because it gets about 20 feet from the edge of the house and the hat actually turns around and starts coming back. And he watched it and it, it went and, and it got about 20 feet on the other side of the house and it turned around and started floating back. This happened three or four times and he finally turned to the woman and he said, Ma'am, do you have any idea what's going on with that hat? She said, Oh, yeah. She said, That's my husband, Fred. He said he was bound and determined to mow the front yard, rain or shine. Sadly, though, that does describe some of our lives. As everything around us, our whole world, seems to be washing away, we're still mowing the yard. We're still cutting the grass. We're doing the little things, pretending that everything is just fine, when in reality, it's not. In reality, everything's being washed away around us. Our world is crumbling. The floodwaters are just carrying everything away. There's a real simple word for that. It's called denial. Not the river in Egypt. Denial. And it's what many of us practice as we have issues in our lives, challenges in our lives. And and when we are in denial, we usually choose one of two courses. The first is... We can make excuses. That is, it's not my fault. There's always an excuse. Do you know people like that? There's always an excuse. They didn't get their work done. They didn't live up their obligations. They excuse themselves. They make excuses. That's one avenue that when we're in denial, we do. Hey, it's not me. It's not my fault. The other is that we make accusations. That is, we accuse others. We excuse ourselves, it's not my fault, but we accuse others, it's your fault. You did this. 
And it would be funny if it wasn't so tragic. We can rewind the tape all the way back to the book of Genesis. And we find the first couple, Adam and Eve, who ate of the tree of the of knowledge of good and evil, the one that God said don't eat of. And then when God finally comes down and confronts them about it, what happens? He goes to Adam because he'd left Adam basically in charge. And he says, Adam, he said, what's happened here? He said, well, that woman you gave me, she calls this. Again, blaming her, blaming Eve and blaming God. And then he turns to Eve and says, Eve, uh, what do you have to say for yourself? And she goes, it was that serpent. The devil made me do it. There's always, it's never me. It's always someone else. And when we find people who are living in denial, who are pretending everything is okay in life, when everything is really being washed away around them, when we see this, these are usually the two things we hear out of their mouths. And believe me, in 20 years of ministry, I've met a lot of people in denial. As a matter of fact, I meet one every day in the mirror because denying reality is sometimes common to all of us. We'd like to pretend it's okay, but when we take a look around us, everything's being washed away. What's the antidote to denial? I guess we could say there are a lot of things, but I'd like to focus on one this morning that can, can, that really explains this. Sometimes we have to hurt enough to change. Does that make sense? We keep going the way we're going until something happens that is, that is so dramatic, so painful, that we, we make a change. Um, alcoholics, drug addicts, they call this hitting bottom. They have to get to that point where it is too painful to stay the way they are. The prodigal son, the, the explanation there was he came to himself. It doesn't necessarily have to be physical pain. It could just be anguish of looking at your situation and seeing the potential that you had and where you end up. Sometimes we have to hurt enough to change. A few years ago, I heard a story about a traveling salesman. There aren't too many of those left, are there? traveling salesman who was traveling around selling farm implements to farmers. And he went to this one farm and he found the farmer sitting on the porch, just rocking in his rocking chair, having had a hard day at it. And he walks up and he begins to, you know, give him his pitch. But over there on the side is an old scruffy looking dog that's laying right beside the chair. And he's just moaning and whining and moaning and whining. And, you know, the, the salesman tries to ignore all this because it's distracting. But, but he's trying to push through because he wants this farmer to buy his stuff. And so he keeps going. But about halfway through his sales pitch, he just finally, finally stopped and said, listen, he said, is there something wrong with your dog? And the farmer looks at him. He says, well, old Buck, he came up here to lay down on the porch. And he laid down on an exposed nail. And it hurts him enough to moan but not enough to move. Ever been there? You're willing to gripe and complain and moan and groan about it, but it doesn't hurt you enough to move. We don't like to think about it this way, but sometimes God uses pain in our lives to get our attention. Sometimes God uses the pain in our lives, sometimes he even sends the pain in our lives in order to get our attention so that it hurts us enough to move. What does it take for God to get your attention? Well, it can take a crisis. 
It can take a crisis for God to get your attention. Go to the doctor. The doctor says, I got bad news. It's a crisis. You're going along. Everything seems to be good. And then your son or your daughter says, Mom, Dad, have some bad news. It can take a crisis. It might even be physical. It might even be pain in your own life. But there's something in your life. Now, we can argue about whether God causes it all or allows it all. That's not the point this morning. But I can tell you God will use it all. God will use those crises, that pain in your life, in order to change you. Because pain is there to tell you something is wrong. When you have pain in your body, that's telling you there's something here that's not the way it ought to be. When I was growing up, one of the shows that we watched faithfully was Hee Haw. Now, anybody's younger than I am are going, what? Hee Haw was, what? Okay, it was kind of like a country Saturday Night Live. Uh, you know, a bunch of skits, but it was all done in guys in overalls with banjos and, and straw hats and and scantily clad, country-looking girls. Anyway, that was, I sometimes wonder if that's why my dad liked to watch it. But anyway, and it had country music, and, and it was just kind of a country Saturday Night Live. That's pretty much what it was. And they'd have skits that took place. And one of the skits that was pretty regular was the, the guy would come to the doctor, and the doctor would be in, and, and he'd go to the doctor, and he said, uh, Doctor, it hurts when I do this. And the doctor's prescription was always, then don't do that. And I think sometimes God gives us the same prescription. We're moaning and groaning and saying, God, it hurts the way I'm living now. God, it hurts what I'm going through right now. And God looks at us and says, well, don't do that. The reason it hurts is because you're outside of my will. The reason there is crisis, the reason there is pain is because you're living in a place that I don't want you to live. I'm trying to tell you there's something wrong. And if we look all the way back in the Old Testament, we can see how God, as he works with his people, he gently woos them, he calls them, he tries to persuade them with love. But there comes a time when they get hard-headed and stiff-necked and God says, okay, the love didn't work, but I got to get your attention because where you're going is not good. Got to pull you back. And so God uses discipline. And he does the same thing in our lives to get our attention and to call us back. A second, a second way that God tries to get our attention is through confrontation. And this, this is on two fronts. Sometimes you're going along happily, merrily on your way. Everything's good. And then you begin to read and bam. You open God's Word, and it's like the, uh, the little thing from Alien that shoots up out of the egg and latches on. If you've never seen the movie, don't. It's kind of scary. Don't watch it alone. Well, sometimes God's Word, it just jumps out and latches on. And it just brings a, a, a moment of confrontation where, where God's truth and your life are brought into stark contrast, and you recognize I am way outside of where God wants me to be. Sometimes it doesn't happen necessarily through reading God's Word. It can happen in a, a sermon. It can happen in a grace group, a Bible study class. It can happen with a friend whom you have given permission to get in your face. 
And if you don't have a friend who has permission to get in your face and speak the truth in love, even if it's hard, you need one. Because sometimes confrontation is the way that God gets our attention. There's a third way that God can get our attention, and it is by far the most extreme way, and that is catastrophe. That is when the bottom drops out, when you hit your spiritual, emotional, sometimes physical bottom. I can tell you God would prefer not to go this far to get your attention. But sometimes we leave him no choice. One of the saddest statements that I found in Scripture, I find in Romans chapter 1. If you haven't read Romans chapter 1, it, it is deep. Put your waders on. It's deep. But as you go through there, what, what we see not once, not twice, but three times is God says, here are people who are living in rebellion. And I've tried to get their attention. And then three times it said, so God gave them over. What does that mean? It means God finally said, if that's the way you're going to go, then I'm going to let you go. But you're going to deal with the circumstances. You need to understand, I don't want you to go there. It is not a good place. But if you're bound and determined to go, I'm not going to tie you up. I'll let you go. Folks, that is the saddest thing you can read in Scripture. God gave them over. That people got to the point where their wills were so set that God said, okay, have at it. The good news on the other end of that is, of course, when it comes time to pick up the pieces, if a person's willing, even through catastrophe, God can bring them back and restore them. We said last week, as you know, we're, we're using an acrostic recovery And what we said about recovery is recovery is not for alcoholics, not just for addicts. Recovery is basically restoration. That is God putting together the pieces of that which are broken in your lives. And it's something all of us need. But we're kind of using that acrostic recovery to help us. And and last year we looked at the, last year, last week we looked at the R. And the R was realize that I'm not God. If you missed that one, you can get a CD, you can get it online and go back and listen to that one. That's the first step, the reality check. Our next step is this. Earnestly believe that there's a power that can do what you cannot do. Earnestly believe that there is a power who can do what you in yourself cannot do. And you can plug into this power, which is far more than sufficient. There is a God. He is not you. Got to get that right. Got to get that first. But he cares for you and he has a power to restore you to help you recover from whatever hurts, habits, or hangups that haunt you. And our key verse today, if you want a memory verse, something to hang on to, is Hebrews eleven six, which says this: "And without faith, it is impossible to please God, because anyone who comes to Him must believe that He exists and that He rewards those who earnestly seek Him." So, what truths do we find here? on our road to hope. I'd like to share some with you this morning. First of all, we need to acknowledge that God exists. That what we just saw. If you, if you want to begin this road to hope, you need to acknowledge that God exists. 
We can't get stuff from every poll and believe every poll that comes down the pipe. But George Gallup has been pretty, pretty consistent through the years. And he, he not only does political polling, he also does polling on cultural trends and things like that. And so uh, he did a survey uh, not too long ago where 96% of the people in America admitted to believing in God in some stripe, some form, some fashion. They believed in a God, God, deity of some form. When they ask people about atheism, you know, not believing at all in God, there were 2% who could classify themselves as atheists. Now, when we look at that, we go, has that changed? And it has. In spite of all the books and television shows and all that, you know, Robert Dawkins and all this stuff, these high-profile atheists who are out being evangelisms for atheism... The actual number of people who call themselves atheists has gone down. Why is that? Well, I guess there could be any number of reasons, but I personally want to attribute it to science. Here's why. As science begins to unfold more and more and more and more natural truth, they begin to unfold the glory of God without even realizing it. As they begin to probe deeper and deeper and deeper into our universe and see farther and farther and farther, we continue to be blown away. And I constantly read articles in science magazines and on the online that say science didn't expect to find this. This was completely different than they were anticipating. And then, of course, you can reverse it. and you, you can move from the telescope to the microscope. And they begin to probe deeper and deeper and deeper into the most minute the smallest things that we could ever perceive. And as they do, what happens is people begin to understand this isn't an accident. There's got to be some other explanation than all of a sudden, out of nothing, something came for no reason. I mean, that's pretty much what you're getting, right? Everything's here for no reason, and it happened from nothing. Listen, whether you buy into specific word-for-word Genesis chapter 1 or not, eventually you come to the point, there must be a God if he did this. Because without it, it doesn't make any sense at all. And God, God has been dropping clues along the way for us. He's been showing himself, revealing himself all along the way. In Romans chapter 1, verse 20, we read, For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and his divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that men are without excuse. When they stare at the skies and the starry heavens, they're without excuse. And in, in Psalm chapter 19, verses 1 and 2, we read, The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they display knowledge. Old Testament and New Testament, both telling us the same thing. Look at creation. God's leaving clues all over the place that he's here and he's here now. And in fact, the Bible says that it's the foolish person who doesn't believe there's a God. There are a lot of people who call you who come to church on a regular basis, you who believe in salvation through Jesus Christ, you who believe there's God. There's a lot of them who would call you foolish. But God says, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. 
The real issue for most of us is not whether or not God exists, but what kind of God is he? Who is God? Not whether he's there or not. And people have some very strange ideas about God. This little boy got, a couple of little boys got in trouble and they got sent to the principal's office at a Christian school and she brought the boys in separately to talk to them and she recognized that what these boys needed more than just, you know, getting in their face and scolding them, what these boys needed was, was to know a little bit more about God and, and to grow because they just didn't seem to have any, any concept that God was watching. And so she brought the first one in, she sat him down and she said, son, I got a real simple question for you today. Where is God? And the boy kind of looked around, and he didn't know how to answer. She asked him two or three more times, and she said, Well, I just want, I want you to think about that. The next time you're tempted to do something, I want you to think about it. Where is God? And so he went out, and the other boy was coming in, and they passed. And, and uh, the, the one who hadn't been in yet looked at him and said, oh, What happened? What's going on? And the one who was in there goes, Well, evidently God is missing. And they're trying to pin it on us. <laughs> People have some really weird ideas about God. Some of them, some of them they get from other religions. But quite frankly, most people, most people make it up as they go along. Even people in church. They pick up bits and pieces from Sunday school, from vacation Bible school, from a sermon here, from a TV preacher there, from a horoscope here, from a book that they read about reincarnation here, from this book over here about what happens after you die. And they they pick this stuff up and they begin to fashion their own understanding of who God is. Let me save you the trouble. You don't have to do that. God is not hiding God is revealing himself over and over and over and over. He's shown us himself to us in creation, but he also speaks to us through the prophets. He speaks to us through his word. He speaks to us through other godly people. He speaks to us by his spirit in that still, small voice. And he speaks to us ultimately through his son, Jesus Christ, who came as the ultimate revelation of who God was. And so our first step this morning is to acknowledge God exists. Secondly, we have to understand God's character. There's a difference between um, trusting someone and not trusting them. You don't trust people you don't know. That's why we tell our kids, don't take candy from strangers, except on Halloween. Then, yeah. Um, I know, it doesn't make a lot of sense, but we do it. Um, Anyway, the... To trust someone, you have to know them. And sometimes once you get to know someone, you actually trust them less. And so when it comes to God, however, the more we get to know him, the more we are able to trust him. And so God wants us to know him so that we can trust him. And so he reveals himself to us. And like I said, ultimately he's revealed himself to us. In his son Jesus. In Colossians chapter 115, we read this He that is Jesus is the image of the invisible God. He's God made visible to us. Jesus came in the flesh, He came as a baby. He lived and walked among us. He not only taught God's truth, but lived God's truth. 
And then he died on a cross for our sins so that we could come into a relationship with the Father. And there's some things that we can learn about God by looking at his son, Jesus. And these things will help us deal with those hurts, habits, and hang-ups we have. First of all, we can know that God knows all about my situation. Some of you need to hear that this morning. God knows all about, all about my situation. The Bible tells us that God knows us up close and personal. That he knows exactly how many hairs you have on your head. Now, admittedly, it's easier. You make it easier on God with some of you than others, like me. It's probably, you, know, probably, you could probably count the ones on my head. Okay. But that's pretty fascinating because even those who are losing their hair like me still have a lot of hairs because they're in the sink all the time. So there's got to be a lot of them still up there. God knows every tear that we cry. God knows every single detail of your life. There's nothing that escapes his notice. Jesus came to us, at least in part, so that he could identify with us and we could identify with him. He walked among us. He ached with us. It even says he cried for us. We can learn from Jesus that God knows every small thing about our lives. Jesus said not even a sparrow falls from the sky that God didn't know about it. A sparrow, a good-for-nothing little tiny bird that just poops on stuff and flies around. And yet God cares when even one of them hits the ground. In Psalm 37, 31-7, we read, of God, you saw my affliction and knew the anguish of my soul. There's some of you this morning, that's, the, that's your verse. Because even though you came in here with a smile on your face, looking like you got it all together, inside the flood is washing everything away. And you hurt. You need to know this morning that God sees the anguish of your soul. He sees that deep pain that no one else sees. And he not only sees the things that are done to us from outside, he also sees the dumb stuff that we do. Psalm 69, 5 reads, You know my folly, O God. My guilt is not hidden from you. God knows all those dumb things you do. Maybe no one else knows that there was a grace group in the life of this church that went out last night and set off fireworks in the middle of the road. God knows. Nothing gets by him. And he wasn't shocked or disappointed. He knows. But he's not shocked or disappointed with anything you do. Or he's not shocked. He's disappointed. He's not shocked. God knows the anguish of your soul. And God knows the folly, the dumb things that you do. And here's the good news. He still loves you. Isn't that good to know? That he, I mean, sometimes that's what we need to tell our kids. You did wrong. I still love you. 
Because that's what God tells us all the time. The, the, the second way that we can um, understand God's character is we need to know that God cares about my situation. Psalm 103, as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord is compassionate on those who fear him. For he knows how we are formed, and he remembers we're dust. God knows us even on the molecular level. He knows everything about us, and he cares about your situation. On the good days and on the bad days, on the days when you're following him and when the days you fall flat on your face, and yet he keeps loving you. Why does he keep loving you? Because love is God's character, and his love is unconditional. In other words, God's love is not based on your performance, but on his character. The Bible says that God is love. So he can't help himself. And he knows you. And he loves you. In fact, he loved you enough to send his son to die on a cross for you. Some of you are familiar with the 12 steps program of AA, NA, many other programs. You use those 12 steps. Step number two acknowledges the need for a higher power. I'm here to tell you today, the higher power is Jesus Christ. It doesn't do you any good to plug your lamp into a pineapple. It doesn't do you any good to plug your lamp into an onion. You can call that onion whatever you want to call it. There's my God right there. Big old onion, got lots of layers. It's a Vidalia onion, so it's sweet. There's my God right there. But there's no power there. If you want power, you need to find the power source. And as God came to reveal himself, he revealed himself to us as the power source. It's the only way to get the power to overcome those things in your life, those things that weigh you down, trip you up, and constantly are on your back. God is the power to change, and he's given us that power in Jesus Christ. And third, God can change me and change my circumstances. Both of these are important. Sometimes God changes me. Circumstances stay the same. Sometimes God changes my circumstances, and sometimes God changes both. God does what is best, but he does it well. In fact, Jesus says in Luke 18, what is impossible for men is possible with God. Some of you have been struggling with pride, pornography. Some of you have been struggling with addiction. You've been struggling with a self-image where you feel lower than dirt. Some of you have been struggling with your past. Because quite frankly, there's a lot of it back there to haunt you. I'm here to tell you there's hope. The power to change is Jesus Christ. Final truth we want to point out this morning is that I need to accept God's offer to help me. I need to accept God's offer to help me. 
is not enough just to believe. That's what we read. We need to believe that there is a God and that he is able. I need to believe that not only God exists, because the Bible says that even the demons believe that God exists, whoopee-doo. 96% of Americans, big deal. Even the demons believe that. They're 100%. I polled them. Gallup went down there and checked them all out. Yeah, we believe there's a God. But beyond that, we've got to trust him. We've got to plug in to the power source, what God has to offer to us. Philippians 2.13 says, For it is God who works in you to will and act according to his good purpose. Your willpower is not enough. Your good intentions are not enough. What you need is God's will and God's power to give you the courage and to help you to change. And here's where the rubber meets the road for a lot of you. Some of you are ready to change. Some of you came here this morning hungry to change. When you look in the mirror and you take that reality check, you are ready to change. But quite frankly, some of you are here and you're scared to change. It's not that you like where you are, but you've gotten used to it. You kind of get comfortable in your addiction or comfortable in your sin or Comfortable in your your sorrow, comfortable in your anguish. And that sounds kind of goofy, but that's what we do. We get comfortable in the mess and assume that the only way to deal with it is pretend that it's not such a big mess. That's not how we need to deal with it. That's not what takes place here. And and some of us aren't going to change until we have the crisis. Or even the catastrophe. But God says you can change now. Because if you don't, you're going to end up hurting yourself and, quite frankly, hurting other people. I don't want to read the, all the passage, but in Luke chapter 9, write this down on your bulletin. Read Luke chapter 9. There's an incident in Luke chapter 9 where there's this boy who is possessed by a demon. And his father comes to him and he says, listen, Jesus... He says, this demon, is, he's out to get my son because he, he, he throws him into the fire. He throws him into the water. He's trying to kill him. Now, scientists look at that and go, well, that's just epilepsy. Well, it's very well-timed epilepsy. Okay, throwing him into fire and throwing him into water, pretty well-timed. All right, here you've got a demon who has possessed this child, trying to kill this child. So he brings him to Jesus because he's looking for those four big letters out front. He's looking for hope. And this is part of the conversation. The father asked Jesus, if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. Jesus replied, if you can, (laughs) if you can, that's what you're asking me. If you can, everything is possible for him who believes. And immediately the boy's father exclaimed, listen to this prayer. I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. That is an honest, humble prayer. God, I believe. But help me where I still don't believe. Some of us think we have to have it all figured out. Every I dotted, every T crossed. All of our our faith tank completely full Before God is going to act. 
Jesus said we need to have the faith as of a child. That faith the size of a mustard seed, which isn't very big, is enough to move mountains. Folks, it's not the size of our faith. It's the size of our God. And you can go to God with the honest prayer, God, I believe. But help me where I don't believe. Some of you may need to change that prayer a little bit. You need to say, God, I trust you. I've been mowing the grass in the flood. I've been minding, going about my business while the whole world around me is getting washed away. And I don't know how to trust you really. I don't know what's on the other end of it. But I trust you. And I'm asking you to help me where my trust fails. Remember last week we said that God gives grace to the humble. God gives grace to those who will humbly come to him and say, Okay, God, I don't have it all figured out, but I'm going to trust you anyway. I don't have all the answers, but I'm going to trust you anyway. I believe. Help me where I don't believe. The Bible tells us what happens when we receive the Spirit of God in us. It says in 2 Timothy 1.7, God did not give us a spirit of timidity, that's fear, but a spirit of power, of love, and self-discipline. Power to overcome my hurts, habits, and hang-ups. Love that is unconditional from Him. And self-discipline that says yes to God and no to whatever the temptation might be. But how do you get from where you are today to where you know God wants you to be, where, quite frankly, your family is praying you will be, and where on some level you want to be? First, believe. Believe that God exists then he knows you, cares about you, and he has the power to set you free. You've got to believe that. You've got to trust that. Secondly, receive his son Jesus Christ into your life as Savior and Lord. There's your power. Other than that, you go around with, with an unplugged lamp. Believe and receive. And we've got some men and women who are in the life of this church who would love to talk with you about what that means. Do you want to know? Do you want to know how your life can be different? The mission of Grace Fellowship is simple. We exist to glorify God by bringing people into a life-changing relationship with Jesus Christ. Some of you are hungry for life change. It can begin today, and we want to help. We're going to sing a song in a few moments, and it's an opportunity for you to humbly step out and come and say, I don't have it all figured out, but I need Jesus in my life. Help. And we're going to link you up with people who can help. 
Others of you are ready to take that step today. You've recognized God's been calling you for a long time, and you understand who he is and what he wants to do in your life, and you're ready to say today is the day that I come down and submit myself to God and allow Jesus to be Savior and Lord of my life. Some of you say, I need a church home. I saw what happened earlier as you prayed for James and Katie and that family, and I need that. I need a church family that will pray for me and surround me and encourage me and comfort me and hold me accountable. I need that. I need a church home. And if God's calling you to be a part of Grace Fellowship, follow that call. Others of you may just need to pray. Where you are, right down up front. You don't even have to have me to do that. I know a lot of people feel like, oh, I've got to grab the pastor's hand. He's got to pray with me. Guess what? God's, God's hot sign is on God's open sign is flashing. His throne room of grace is waiting for you.